Hi, everybody. Welcome back. This is Tom Salemi of the MedTech Talk podcast and, of course, the MedTech Conference. Thank you for returning. It's been a bit uh, a bit too long since we've talked last. Uh, we uh, took a little hiatus uh, from MedTech Talk uh, in to focus on a, uh, a redesign of our newsletter, a redesign of our website, and uh, frankly, working on a killer agenda for, uh, for the MedTech Conference, which will be held on June 1st. Uh, at the Lowe's Minneapolis Downtown Hotel, of course, in Minneapolis. Very excited, working with uh, Justin Klein and Kevin Hikes. They are our co-chairs. We have a fantastic advisory board. Uh, very excited. I don't want to go name one and, and leave out any because I think they're uh, they're all great contributors to the event. So go to medtechconference.com. You'll see our new website uh, with uh, great work done by our team. We have a mess of new content up and more coming your way. So if you want to hear some great, interesting perspectives on MedTech, go to medtechconference.com, not only for our written content, not only for our Health GTV videos, uh, but also for these podcasts. So today we're going to uh, go back in time uh, just a, just a month or so uh, I was at uh, J.P. Morgan and had a chance to speak with uh, many folks in MedTech. It was actually a, a great week uh, to be there. To, to Obviously, everyone goes there to meet with others. And this was my opportunity to get many people in a room with a camera to talk about MedTech. So uh, I really couldn't have been happier. Uh, today's discussion is with our co-chair, Justin Klein. Uh, very happy to be working with Justin. I've known him for a very long time, uh, and uh, he is uh, really one of the true believers in medtech. Uh, NEA obviously closed on their three billion plus fund, and yet they still do medtech, and they still do early stage, and they produce great companies, and they generate great exits. So there's really not a lot not to like about what NEA is doing. Uh, we had Josh Macauer on here a few months ago. Uh, you can go to medtechconference.com to listen to that podcast. And Justin Klein, we had him on a year ago when he first took over as co-chair of the MedTech Conference. This time, though, we talked to Justin not only about NEA's thoughts on MedTech, but about his own personal insights on things like digital health and robotics, which are themes we'll be hitting upon at the MedTech Conference. So please enjoy this interview with uh, one of the good guys in MedTech, Justin Klein. And uh, don't forget, check out the new website, medtechconference.com. Hi, this is Tom Salemi from Healthage TV. We're here outside the outskirts of the uh, J.P. Morgan Conference, uh, having a great opportunity to visit with, with friends, old and new. And we've got uh, Justin Klein here, a partner at NEA and co-chair of our MedTech Conference. Justin, thanks for taking a few minutes. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Tom. One of the things uh, we're talking about, obviously, is medtech innovation, uh, and it seems like the innovation is being innovated. There's new ways to create new technology within medtech, uh, and it's something that obviously needs to, to be done. Now, you come at it from a perspective, an interesting perspective, being with NEA. Uh, you've got your new fund, $3 billion, give or take. Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> and you're still investing in medtech, which, which we really appreciate. How are you seeing things from your perch above, sort of happening below? Do you see a lot of changes in how new technologies 
are being developed in, in medtech, and, and what is NEA's take on sort of what of new companies and new products being developed in the space? Yeah, so I think at a at a fundamental level, innovation is going to continue to play an important role in improving healthcare. And for my interest, medical devices is an important part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, we also recognize that innovation is happening throughout healthcare, including through payment mechanisms and alignment of. Uh, hospitals and providers and how payers might be approaching the market differently. And each of these things comes together and they affect um, each of the other aspects. For example, medical devices. You and I were talking offline about how there are increasingly um, different views of how to develop a digital health Mm -hmm. strategy, um, whether that be for improving care delivery and efficacy itself or, you know, how people think about marketing their products. Um, clearly new opportunities to do things better, more efficiently, cheaper. And so, you know, we, we try to think about um, how we've done things in the past successfully mm-hmm. with, you know, really an eye towards uh, a focus on the patient and the clinician. I think understanding how they interact and how healthcare outcomes are achieved is fundamentally important. Um, but there are a lot of other stakeholders in the process that we try to think about as well. Um, increasingly, you know, we, we of course, as a finance and investment-focused firm, think about how these things get paid for, mm-hmm. absolutely, um, and similarly how value is recognized along the process of creating innovation, developing, improving its value, and then um, getting it out into the marketplace commercially. And you know, there's innovation happening there as well. And so, I think what we try to do is be mindful of um, these cycles are long. But in fact, you know, the world is always changing, and with change, there's opportunity. And um, if we can be just a little bit ahead of a curve, um, try to think about the ways in which we can invest in something, work with entrepreneurs, you know, kind of stick to our knitting, but also incorporate some of the new opportunities to do things a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I think that hopefully is a recipe for success. How real, and we've talked about this in planning for the MedTech Conference, how real is digital technology within medtech. Um, it's easy to say, slap a sensor on that thing, plug it into a cloud, but is that really a necessity for someone developing, uh, obviously not every medtech device, but more broadly, do medtech devices, companies, medtech companies, they need to have a digital strategy? Do their products need to have some sort of enabling technology that will allow them to collect data and transmit data and really be part of this bigger effort to manage healthcare? Yeah. It's a, look, it's a really good question, and um, you know, I, I, I think I want to be inclined to say yes. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, in every clinical setting or product opportunity, there's not a, a role that digital is going to play really in what you're trying to prove. You know, we've got therapies that rely on new insights into human physiology mm-hmm. that if we manipulate through neuromodulation or ablation or um, all kinds of different things. We can create a new paradigm for addressing a disease or a condition. Digital health doesn't really have anything to do with that. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you can find ways in which understanding the data that might arise from a treatment encounter or how a chronic disease is managed, either leading up to an intervention or after an intervention has happened, um, I think there are definitely opportunities to improve outcomes. Mm-hmm. So we, we try to think very actively about what, what can be done differently outside of this sort of you know, explicitly you know, novel 
medical device, let's say, or a new procedure that's been developed, mm -hmm. to maybe wrap additional um, value-creating uh, innovation, you know, through digital health or, or the use of information um, in the care of a patient over the longer term. I, I think ultimately, um, everyone cares about outcomes, sure. right? And we're getting better at measuring outcomes and understanding them. I think it's still early in seeing how outcomes inform payment mechanisms and really align incentives. Um, at the same time, I think that is the direction that we're headed. And, you know, everyone in the ecosystem needs to be mindful of, you know, how their role is going to be measured over time. And, um, you know, I, I think value will be ascribed accordingly. I want to take a quick break from this conversation. Just to remind you, go to medtechconference.com to register to attend the MedTech Conference. It's on June 1st in Minneapolis at the Lowe's Minneapolis Hotel. Please be there. It'll be great to have you. And we'll get right back to this talk with Justin Klein. In one area, when we've talked about this too, um, is robotics. It's, a, it's obviously a space that's been around for a, a long time now. Um, Intuitive has, has led the way, but we're seeing the acquisition of Mako. Stryker's got interest in other areas. I mean, it seems, it seems to be another technology that may have been a buzzword for a time, but now it seems to be really getting some solid footing in medtech. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, um, I think, first of all, our ability to develop robotic systems, you know, mechanically, and, and the sort of software and electrical engineering that goes into that has made tremendous progress for the mm -hmm. last 20 years. So we're in, a, we're in a period where we can now do things with robots or, you know, um, in some ways, navigation and sort of procedural guidance overlaps with robotics. Um, we have the ability to do these things. Now the question is, how do we apply them to make care more efficient or more effective? Um, I think if you look at the history of a company like Intuitive Surgical, clearly I think a, a, a phenomenal company that has really helped define the field. They found the most opportunity for uptake of using robotics and procedures in cases where you know patients perceived an improved clinical outcome, uh, surgeons found procedures easier to do, mm -hmm. either through manipulating tissue or visualizing tissue compared to other approaches like laparoscopic surgery. And it's understanding that kind of nexus of interest that you, know, you find the right way in which robotics can be used to make the you know, experience better. I think along the way, we're, we're trying robotics in places where it maybe ultimately won't have you know, that level of benefit, either perceived by patients or, or physicians or payers. Um, but we're going to find some really interesting use cases for it, and mm -hmm. they're going to be outside of the general surgery setting. Um, you know, in my view, I think the ability to control instruments very, very precisely and consistently is key. I also think that um, the ability to sort of use robotics to, what I say, is, uh, I think is democratizing a procedure. Um, there are certain areas of medicine where a procedure is extremely painstaking. It's almost an art form. And... Uh, those surgeons with the best hands, so to speak, have been able to establish themselves as leaders in their field and the go-to person to deliver the, the best kind of care. Um, it takes a, a, an exceptional amount of training and skill to learn how to do that. I think there are places in which robotics can be deployed to sort of improve the quality of outcomes for what we'll call the average surgeon. And hopefully in doing so, actually expand access to care, you know, by creating more opportunities for places to get you know, high-quality care. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, I think one good example of that in our portfolio that I'm excited about is a company called Vitronis. Um, so Vitronis has a robotically controlled catheter and uh, an integrated imaging capability for the ablation of arrhythmias associated with atrial fibrillation. Most cases today are done with an RF ablation catheter, and it is a very painstaking process of controlling a catheter that could be four feet long and very precisely linking together little point-by-point ablations mm. inside the uh, atria um, and achieving consistent, thorough lesions that, that allow for the blockage of electrical signals. Um, it's hard, and it's actually you know a procedure that can be very unpredictable in its time, and when a clinician wants to schedule three cases a day, but one case takes six hours, you've blown your entire schedule. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people have been turned off by uh, EP ablation you know, because of that. We think Vitronis has the ability to create a very elegant user interface and the ability to map and plan a case and then execute with a very consistent, predictable you know, lesion set. And so it's a, it's a specific application of, of robotic capability that I think, you know, has the potential to bear on the promise of what robotics can do in, in medical devices. And you've got some traction in that uh, being a, a, an investment from Abbott uh, in Vitronis and, and part of that larger deal where they acquired Topera and uh, established a relationship with Advanced Cardiac Therapeutics, right? That's right. So, so there is definitely some interest from above there. For NEA, you mentioned your size of your fund before. I know a small percentage of that is going to go into MedTech, but a small percentage of $3 billion is, is a lot of money. Yeah. How are you still doing early stage? By every other firm you talk to, when they have a lot of money to invest, they say, we're going to stay later stage, we can't afford uh, to get too early, we can't commit the time to those early stage deals. There's a lot of great late stage opportunities that need capital to get to the finish line. How do you view that that uh, early versus late stage argument? And I, I sense from you that there's still very much a, a commitment to early stage, and it has to be beyond, we think it's the right thing to do. It has to be the right thing to do for your investors, otherwise right. you wouldn't be doing it. That's right. So how do you do early stage effectively with such a large fund? Well, it's a, it's a good question. We, we are very committed to early stage investing across the entire you know spectrum of what NEA does, and, and certainly true in medical devices. We've been an active sponsor of multiple incubators mm-hmm. in medtech over the years, um, the most recent incarnation of which is uh, the Foundry-sponsored incubator in Ireland called Fire One. I'm, I'm proud to be a board member there. Um, you know, I think the reason, a, a reason many people have gotten away from early stage investing in medtech is because, you know, financing markets and development timelines have been challenges. And they've been particularly challenging when you take on a lot of novelty, you know, in developing an, an innovative product. There can be, you know, design and engineering novelty, uh, where you're inventing new ways of, of building a, a device. Um, certainly, clinical development can take a lot of time and work. Mm-hmm. The regulatory process, ultimately, then reimbursement frequently and, and commercialization. I, I think that in a number of cases we saw. Phenomenal innovations developed, but ones that had hurdles at almost every step of that process. And that can take time that exceeds the life of most venture capital funds. Absolutely. You know? So starting out on the front end, um, we still believe there's, there's you know, exceptional opportunities to innovate. And we want to be part of starting companies and sponsoring entrepreneurs to go after big problems. Um, at the same time, we're mindful of what 
the different types of hurdles are that that technology is going to have to overcome. Um, we, we love to be involved in sponsoring innovation at a phase where our capital and, and the resources we can bring to bear on something are going to help solve the, the, the toughest and, and the sort of the most value creating hurdle along the spectrum. So in some cases we can start a company early and what we need to do is, is definitively prove out physiology with an application where there is a fairly well understood clinical path to demonstrating the, the clinical benefit mm-hmm. associated with doing something novel. Um, regulators understand the nature of this kind of product and, and that patient population and there's ideally reimbursement in place. So, you know, from the front end, we need to invest time up front to sort of de-risk an opportunity and, and create a, a product that others downstream are going to recognize and see how it could integrate into a business or a, a clinical care paradigm. That's great. Um, in other cases, you know, clinical development may be the big hurdle. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're active investors at what I'll call the sort of mid-stage of a company's life, where they may have had three to five years of, of early development and, and moving things along, but now it's really time to prove the clinical value. And that could be a several hundred patient clinical trial that we get involved in sponsoring. And if that's really you know the, the most value-creating proof point in the process of, of creating some innovation, you know, we'd like to be a part of that and, um, and then stay with that company beyond. What is the ecosystem like for early stage in med tech? When 10 years ago, you would have had you know, a dozen or so venture capital firms looking at similar deals, partnering up, syndicating. There are fewer of those firms around. Um, we're seeing corporates move in, creating their own accelerators, kind of universities stepping up, coming up with seed programs. and, and so. Are you working more closely with those other non-VC partners to, to find early stage deals, or do you still sort of stick to the formula that you've used and, and, and work with, with institutional and venture partners uh, to, to fund new ideas. Yeah. Well, so first of all, we, we really like to partner with others. Mm-hmm. And um, we're pretty open-minded about the nature of the partner. And I think in, a, in an environment like this, the, the ecosystem is really active, um, but it is changing. And so you know, we think about who, who are the right sets of partners you know, for us to work with. Um, we want to make sure that Somebody who's getting involved with us in a company, say as a, a co-investor, is of like mind and has the same vision for where we want to take this company and the, you know, how we want to think about investing to support the company's development. And you know, obviously, management we, we want all, everyone to be on the same page. But there are examples in early stage companies. For example, um, really exciting company in the heart failure space called Cardionomic mm-hmm. was one that um, NEA seeded out of one of our incubators and at a very early phase partnered with Cleveland Clinic. Uh, who brought IP as well as some investment capital to the project, and then Great Batch, who again provided some capital as well as development resources um, to bring sort of early you know, prototype tools and systems that we could then test and mm-hmm. got into the clinic. Um, I think in both cases, it was our first experience in co-investing and collaborating with them in the early stage, but it was a, a great partnership. Um, I think across the, you know, lifespan of a investment in a company, we're always seeking, you know, opportunities to partner with new folks that can continue to add value, particularly in places where, where we may not have that same skill set. Um, frequently, that is corporates. It's, it's other VCs. And, you know, I think we, we tend to think of these investments as having, a, you know, probably a 
four to seven, sometimes ten year life, and you can imagine there are a lot of different cycles that come through in, mm-hmm. that, in that kind of period. And so, you know, we're always trying to be opportunistic and, and finding the right folks to work with for one of our companies. Great. And final question. If you could fix one thing in MedTech to make your job more easier, what would it be? Um, you know, I, I would I would love to see a, a stronger IPO market hmm. um, for medtech companies. Mm-hmm. And and by stronger, I think it would be great to have a, a broader audience of of healthcare specialists who are um, interested in funding companies at later stages, not necessarily you know revenue stage only, as is frequently the hurdle. I think if you look at the data from IPOs over the last. 18 to 24 months in med tech, there, there's a bit of a imaginary, you know, cut off at a 20 million dollar, you know, revenue business. Uh, beyond which, there's a relative, there has been a relatively receptive IPO market. Um, below which, you know, companies have to have some pretty special characteristics in order to to get public. I think that um, having public investment as a source of capital for companies. And putting them on a track to be financed as standalone companies is a very healthy thing mm-hmm. for all phases of the ecosystem. Um, you know, I, I think it, in certain cases we can we have the resources to fund companies, you know, all the way to the finish line. Um, but getting a, a company public and um, some of the things that that does, not only for management and providing you know liquidity opportunities when they've been. Um, involved in a project for you know several years um, is really valuable. It's healthy for the culture of a company. Um, I think it's also helpful in the innovation process because the standards at which a public company needs to operate are are frequently you know higher um, than you know what is involved in running a, a private company. And so people I think tend to step up their game when they're a public company. Mm-hmm. And I think good things happen when that happens. So I'd love to see that type of opportunity be consistent. Um, it's been pretty cyclical over the last 10 to 15 years, so we've had kind of discrete windows when a lot of good companies have been able to get public, and, and then other times when good companies that are actually ready to perform as a public company and I think are on a clear path to a lot of value creation and public investors will really benefit from, probably can't get past that you know, pre-revenue hurdle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that would, that would really fundamentally change how we think about investment opportunity and, and funding value, you know, value creating companies. And hopefully a lot of the conversations this week at uh, JP Morgan will lead to that happening in 2016. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff happening out there right now. And so I'm actually quite optimistic about how 2016 looks and, and beyond. Great. Well, we'll go out on a high note. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. My pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Justin Klein, for joining us at JP Morgan. And of course, for all of your help, with the MedTech Conference. I'm very excited about the event we're putting together. Again, it's on June 1st in Minneapolis. I've been involved with many MedTech conferences with many different organizers, and I have to say there is uh, no comparison uh, when it comes to measuring the the spirit, enthusiasm, and uh, support for this event. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be part of it. So, Thanks, Justin, for helping me make it a success last year, for making, I think, even a greater success this year. Thank you all for listening to this podcast. Tune in to medtechconference.com and for the MedTech Talk podcast. We'll have many more coming your way, uh, not only uh, conversations with folks that we've had recently, but, but obviously new conversations 
with uh, some of the uh, some of the innovators and leaders and more exciting people in medtech. And don't forget, register to go to the MedTech Conference, and we will see you in Minneapolis.